Hi, this is Brent Barber, the founding director of the Bicycle Film Festival, and this is Resonance FM. Ride on until the break of dawn, because you don't stop. Uh-uh. The other day, I was on my way to work, you know, so I passed this corner and I stopped for the light, and there was this cat and he was standing there and he was jumping up and down, Jim, he was in a big hurry. He was trying to get to the train station, because he said, man, my old lady's coming in on the train, and I got to get down there, Jim, my car broke down, and I can't get a cab, would you give me a ride, brother, please? So I told him, yeah, man, he said, listen, man, he said, I've been waiting a long time for her too, Jim. And she finally made up her mind to come on back home, straighten up and take care of business. I'm going on down there and wait on this train, you understand? It don't come in until this evening, but I don't want to be late, you understand? The cat was standing there and he started crying. He said, listen, let me tell you. you know what, man? Train with a lonely whistle Blowing down the track Oh, train with a lonely whistle Blowing down the track Come on and bring your precious cargo Bring my baby back Train you up and you blow it Because you were too fast Yes you were Listen to me train you up and blowing Because you were too fast Don't you know you got to take it you want to laugh Listen to me train Take it nice and easy When you go around the curve Take it nice and easy When you go around the curve Don't shake up my baby And don't you upset her This is Resonance 104.4 FM. My name is Jack Thurston and this is The Bike Show. And on today's show we're talking about bike and rail integration. And to help me do that in the studio today is Dave Holliday, who's the um, bicycling and public transport campaigner for the CTC, otherwise known as the Cyclist Touring Club. Welcome to The Bike Show, Dave. Thanks for coming in. And so anyone who doesn't know, the CTC is the UK's oldest and biggest cycling advocacy membership-based organisation, isn't it? Yeah, well, we're basically about the oldest transport lobby group in the UK. Um, I quite found the other day, I looked up some old stuff and found that in 1882, we'd been lobbying for bikes on trains. So uh, we've been at it rather a long time. And you've just launched a new campaign that that's saying that train companies and the government ought to be getting their act together on this. Well, we've taken the opportunity because uh, the Strategic Rail Authority 
finishes uh, or finished at the end of the last year. Um, there's still some tail ends to tie up until April. Uh, but effectively, the control of the railways and the cycling policy moves to one minister, Mr Derek Twigg. So we thought it would be a good idea to go and knock on his door and say, since you're now looking after the trains and the bicycles under one policy unit uh, or one sort of uh, common head, uh, why can't we get them to work together? Because they should. Because you came down on the train today from Glasgow, right? That's correct, yeah. And how, how was your journey? Um, it was as I expected because uh, I use a bike. I know it takes me between seven and eight minutes to get from the house to the station, so I usually leave about ten minutes before the train does, um, and I'm on the train. And as you as you know, when I came here, uh, you were getting a little bit worried, but uh, I know that it takes me exactly twelve minutes to get from Euston to Waterloo, and this is about halfway, so uh, I, I timed my arrival quite finely. So you're a, you're a, you're a your experience was a, a basically a positive one. I mean, I saw you have a folding bike, so that uh, that gives you a lot. You know, gives it gives you, you a lot of flexibility. It gives you your head up again. You know, compared to people with a, a regular bike, because I mean, the, the perceived wisdom and I don't know. Matt Seaton was writing about it in the Guardian a couple of months ago. Is that it's just gone wrong that you used to be able to take your bicycle on a train sling it in the guards van and it was free it was convenient it was there was almost unlimited space and now it's all about reservations it's all about extra charges i mean ha- have things gotten worse i wouldn't say that uh, it's gone wrong because it wasn't free because uh, only we only had free bike carriage from about 1977 for the silver jubilee when someone found that the guards vans weren't filling up with parcels anymore so what do we put in them well, let's put bicycles in and encourage people to travel with their bikes uh, and ctc has a policy on bikes and trains uh, that actually says that uh, if the space is limited we need to have sort of market governance uh, and the, the, the tricky issue is uh, being able to say, you can cycle to the station because it gets you to the station, you can cycle from the station. If you're doing that journey regularly, you don't actually need to take the bike on the train because you can have a bike at each end. But Bike, shop, bike shops will be happy about that one. Well, bike shops will be happy, but the, the big uh, bugbear is that when you come to London, um, in 1996 we tried to get a, a bike station going at Victoria so that people could leave bikes overnight at Victoria. We're still trying 10 years later. Um, we're dealing with a, a very high inertia organisation and, and nobody's kicking them about bikes. And is it to do with privatisation? I don't think so. Um, I, the the problems with uh, bikes and trains existed uh, well before privatisation. We're dealing with uh, bureaucratic organisations that have to take decisions in certain ways. And uh, there's only one real incentive that makes things work, and that's sort of waving uh, the, the green policy documents that the Royal Bank of Scotland produce in, right. in units of one pound. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I mean, is is the problem that your your members members of the CTC like me are coming to you? with is about uh, having to make a reservation or not being allowed on a peak train or there not being enough room on a train um if you want to go for a group ride and you're there with you you know you live in london and you want to take the train you know out of the nasty bit so you can get straight out into the countryside if you're on one of those trains that only takes uh two bicycles and you've got it is a three big, or four friends. What are you supposed to do? It is a big problem. I mean, we, we've got to try and get the industry to recognise that uh, they've got to design in flexibility in their trains. Um, at peak hours, obviously, there is a high demand to move people, uh, and so the space is at a premium. 
the CTC policy allows for that because we, we, we reckon that uh, if the space is at a premium, you have a market-driven market, uh, system. So that uh, if you absolutely desperately have to take a bike on the train, you, you have to make special arrangements to do it, possibly pay a fee, get a permit. Um, but uh, the other people also have their facilities provided. So instead of being just left with open racks, which are vulnerable, theft goes on, there is actually a proper, secure place to park a bike. And even then, some of that will be charged for uh, for premium security. I mean, it seems like that in the, on the continent and in the, mm. in the United States, the trains are a lot longer. <laughs> and so why can't they just slap an extra um, carriage on for, for bicycles or you know, wheelchair users or anybody, you know, or bulky objects or whatever? It it, it's one of the funniest constraints of the system. Everybody wants to go to work between 7 and 9. Uh, and uh, that means that you're running lots and lots of trains between 7 and 9 and you're doing damn all else with them the rest of the time. It also means that, uh, and this is where some of the rail operators are really, really uh, not very helpful, um, for example, we, we have trains that are running within those curfew periods where some operators, and I, I'm sure you'll name them if I don't, uh, but some operators will say we're having a blanket curfew. Uh, we won't let you on this train even though there are only five other people in your carriage and there won't be any more people getting on this train. You can't travel on it because it's crowded. Um, you know, there's, the government's actually paying these companies um, Southern, for example, got seventy-one point one million last year, uh, and effectively for what for for the uneconomic running of trains because uh, they have to run empty trains to cater for the fact that the trains are full coming back. You, 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 if you're going to have full trains going in one direction, you've got to send empty trains in the other, and that oh. costs you money. Oh. And um, so, if we have a empty train going along and we can actually put cyclists on it we should be putting mm. cyclists on it um, and not saying you can't come so on a more train. flexible approach i mean are there any other countries that seem to do it better there's even places in the uk that seem to do it better yeah, uh, I mean, what are the examples <laughs> i mean who who is you know best practice and who is the kind of you know playing catch up? You know, we're not talking about naming and shaming here, but uh... no, no, I wouldn't do that, of course. But um, one of the things that I found quite incredible is that as you move northwards, people are uh, more pragmatic, more practical. Um, and I'll probably get uh, landed one as soon as I walk out this door now. But uh, they're, they're pragmatic and practical. And Mersey Rail used to have a, a bike ban at peak hours. They took that bike ban off in May 1998, and they haven't put it back. Because effectively, the, the thing's self-regulating. Uh, you try and get on a peak hour train in Liverpool, and the passengers will tell you not to get on. Mm, um, mm. You know, it's self, self-regulating for the commuters. And for the odd one or two, they can, they can usually cope with that. Yeah, I remember being on... I was cycle touring in Romania in 1992, and we got on a night train um, overnight that was absolutely empty, going a long distance, because I think we were coming back to Bucharest after where we'd gotten to up by the Ukrainian border. And um, we put our bikes on and got a nice compartment and everything like that. And then overnight, obviously, the train going into the morning rush hour becomes a commuter train. And suddenly our carriage is absolutely full with people. We're there sort of in our pyjamas with our bicycles all around us. And it was so full that we couldn't get the bike out of the compartment. And we had to kind of get the wheels off and put it out through the window to get it out. It was a (laughs) physical impossibility. I've been on trains like that, yeah. It's it's, it's quite amazing, some of the sort of... uh, Eastern European trains of that, that period was uh, very, very crowded with people. So could the government write it into the train operating companies' charters that they have to provide a, 
a better, more user-friendly service for cyclists? I mean, is that something you're pushing for? I think that has to come because um, one of the things about trains is they're very good at moving large numbers of people through distances at speed. Um, They're not much good as a door-to-door service, but everybody makes a journey from doorstep to destination. So the train is no good for that. Um, The train has to work with other means of transport, other modes of transport, and uh, the best mode of transport that works for the train is the bicycle. You can consolidate a load of people to a station in the place where the train can stop, put them on the train, then you take them to the other end, and they disperse quickly by bicycle. Um, If we did this more in London, for example, at the London Termini, um, you wouldn't have so many people pressing to go down onto the tube because they'd all fly to all four four winds um, with their bicycles. It does seem to be happening a lot. I think the folder has really been the revolution, it seems to me. It has opened up a lot of opportunities because it's made up... The folder compensates for the flaws in the system we have, uh, and any system will compensate for the flaws. So because we don't have secure cycle parking, because offices and uh, places won't let you take your bike inside, uh, and because trains have no space on to take a, a bicycle at peak hours people are taking folding bikes. Likewise, they take them on buses. I mean, uh, we've just had an interesting success for conventional bikes uh, in being able to get a trial to take on uh, long-distance bus services in Wales. Uh, And, of course, uh, buses go where trains don't. Yeah. And so if people want to help out with your campaign in terms of lobbying the government, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, there's a number. This this is why we started the campaign. Now, um, there are a number of things that can be done. Uh, we have a, an early day motion, an EDM, and uh, you can get your MP to sign that EDM. We're we're up around the hundred mark now. Uh, we reckon we, if we, we're lucky, we're going to get about three hundred. Uh, and this is to a cross party thing, is it? It's a cross party thing. There's an there's an all party cycling group. Uh, they've put forward a, a, an early day motion, and uh, it's one. Oh, Dear, this is where I forget the number, 1468, well, uh, and it's all contained on the CTC website. So if you go to the CTC website, can I just... Yeah, totally, Yes, it's totally. um, www.ctc.org.uk uh, slash campaigns, and that takes you to a page where you click and you go to see all the campaigning issues that we're pushing on rail and bike. Uh, there is a promising sign in Europe that um, there are some railway legislation going through which could make it... Uh, compulsory for all European rail operators to provide the space to take bikes on trains. Not necessarily to have it available on every train, but on every train that's in running around Europe, you can actually have a facility to take a bike, even if you have to pay for it. Well, that's uh, that, that sounds great. Something good coming out of Brussels. Well, stick around, Dave, and we're going to uh, talk a little bit about the Road Traffic Act, I think, mm. as well, uh, a little bit later on. Any listeners to The Bike Show who were listening back in May of last year may have heard a show we did with uh, Tom Kevill-Davis, a.k.a. The Hungry Cyclist, um, a man who was about to set off on a journey around the Americas on a bicycle, um, starting in New York, going across the top of uh, the northern part of the United States into Canada, then down the west coast, down into Mexico, which he which is where he is at the moment. He was last seen in La Paz, Mexico, um, having clocked up more than 7,000 miles. And um, his angle on his trip around the Americas is, uh, is described by his name, the hungry cyclist. He's going around eating um, all the distinctive food that he can find and uh, trying to seek out the perfect meal. 
Anyway, we were off air when he was in the, in the US, and since he's gone south of the border into Mexico, it's been more difficult to track him down. But what I did manage to track down was an interview that he did a couple of weeks ago um, with American public radio station KCRW out of Los Angeles. Um, it's from the Good Food program. And it was clear from this interview that in the United States, the land of the automobile, a lone Englishman on a bike was something of a curiosity. What a netball! Indeed, whatever that is. <laughs> Why didn't you just cycle all around England? Um, yeah, I, I guess I just wanted the adventure. You know, England England would have been home to, uh, you know, near family, near friends, too many distractions, if you like. Yeah, I wanted the big road trip. And uh, America seemed like the great place to start for that. Now, how important was the desire to eat a lot in this decision to do this? Very, very important. I went um, cycling around France a few summers ago and... Uh, Went with a friend. He gave up on the second day. Left me by myself. The second day. The second day. Yeah, he was a bit useless. And uh, it went on cycling by myself, and just loved the fact that on a bicycle you're hungry. I'm a food lover, and so you're always thinking about what you're going to eat and then eating it. And kind of got back to England and thought somebody should ride a bicycle around countries and ride about food. And uh, yeah, here I am. How far do you ride each day? Depending on the daylight hours, distractions, and uh, things like that, but c- trying to get about fifty miles in a day, which is a you know it's a good morning of riding. So that must give you license to eat whatever you want. I can eat whatever I want, however much. <laughs> it's it is wonderful. You don't have to worry about it. You know, dessert is always on the menu. Yeah, it's 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 just a great way to travel. You've gone from New York to L.A. Yeah. What do you think about American food? It's it's great. It's it has a terrible reputation. In <laughs> I think probably only second to the UK's food, and uh, in in terms of bad reputation. But it it's really interesting. It's very diverse, and you know, and so it should be. You've got a great amount of natural resource here in terms of produce, and a great mix of people. And when you get on a bicycle and ride across the country, you see you know how, how that's how that's developed over the years. It's it's, it's pretty interesting. So I I really want to get into sort of the interactive aspect of this journey for you. You have a website called The Hungry Cyclist, and you basically have asked for people to send suggestions about where to eat. That's it. Yeah, I kind of, um, when I was planning the trip, wanted to really find the the most interesting food in America and just figured the Internet was the way to go and decided to build the website and, and make the trip a little interactive, if you like, and ask the public where they think I should eat, whether it be in their homes or food festivals, restaurant shops, and just got a great response. You know, and, and within the first few weeks, I was getting all these suggestions, and I thought, damn, this is actually going to work. So have you been invited to a lot of people's homes? The, I've Yeah, endless amounts of people's homes. And, you know, whether they've seen the website or they've seen me on the road and I have a little sign on the back of the bike, you know, people say, what are you doing? And I explain. And the next thing I know, I'm in their house or they're suggesting someone in their town who cooks a great you know, meal or something. And you're, you're in there, you're eating, you're meeting everyone. And that, for me, has been the best bit of the trip is the, the interesting people you meet with food. Did you ever have an experience of getting invited to someone's home and being confronted with really strange food that was very difficult to eat? I got to um, Minnesota snapping to, which was pretty interesting. Wow. Um, yeah, it's pretty. it's, it's a pretty interesting uh I mean, they're just disgusting creatures. You, see <laughs> like, you know, I was expecting a little kind of, you know, turtle, but these things are like dinosaurs, you know, they're huge. And uh, But the meat was actually very good, but it was when they were saying, you know, you've got to eat this. I was like, ah, you know, you have to kind of rejog your brain and, and kind of realize what you're eating. So when you get invited to people's homes, do you tend to pitch your tent in their backyard? 
It depends. Sometimes they say come and stay, and I mean, if if you're out in the, in the Midwest, you know, you don't have the campsites that, that you have on the on the West Coast here. So, you know, if you're stuck, you'll knock on somebody's door and you'll say, you know, do you mind if I pitch my tent in your field? And invariably, they'll kind of hear the English accent, be pretty interested in what you're doing, and the next thing you know, you're sitting around a table and you know having a steak and some homemade pie and uh, and just sharing stories. So it, it goes both ways, yeah. Could you describe a day for us? That was just an incredibly wonderful day, a day where you, at the end of it, said, I'm in heaven right now. Yeah, God. Um, and I had, I had one day up in um, in British Columbia, and um, I was cycling down from the, the Rockies, and uh, the sockeye salmon were migrating up the Thompson River. And I was following the river, and whenever I looked in the river, I could see all the salmon moving upstream, which is a natural kind of phenomenon in itself. But I obviously wanted to try and eat some of the salmon, so I asked a few locals. I said, "You know, is it possible to eat them?" And they said, uh, "No, because they're too far gone, and there's, you know, they're, they're spent by the time they get to the top, and the meat's not good." And then someone said that the local First Nations, the Sushwap, do eat them, and they catch them with dipping nets. And someone said, "Well, you should go into the reservation and uh, and find, you know, speak to the chief and stuff like that." And I ended up doing that and met the chief, and he ended up catching a salmon with a dipping net cooking it in the traditional way over a fire and then he made indian ice cream which is uh, using a soap berry which is and, and ate with him and his family and that just to get that kind of food experience that is so indigenous was was just very very cool there's a picture on your website of you with a wild turkey <laughs> tell us about that <laughs> that was uh staying in astoria a family had seen the website and uh, they're doing their best to live kind of self-sufficiently and they said, come and stay. And the weather, it was up in um, kind of the Washington-Oregon border. The weather was horrific. It had been raining for about a week. I was a drowned rat. And they said, you know, come and stay. So I went and hung out for a few days. And on the last night, they said, you know, tomorrow we'd like to cook you turkey. I was like, that sounds good. And they said, but you're going to have to go and uh, catch one and kill it. <laughs> and uh, the next thing I knew, I was kind of chasing around the garden with a hatchet um, and a net and managed to catch the turkey and had to chop its head off, um, pluck it, gut it butcher it and and then it was prepared into a delicious a delicious meal but it was a, it was a pretty interesting uh, insight into into you know where food comes from if you like and where are you going from here uh next week i will cross into mexico which is a whole new ball game it's yeah very excited but also a little nervous um a different type of adventure a different type it's i, I really see you see the adventure in two parts you know north america and canada it's it's going to change the trip my spanish is limited but i'm learning and yeah just just to be in a country where you're seeing indigenous recipes in a country where food and family is so such an important part of the culture i think is going to be wonderful do you have an end in sight or are you just sort of letting it be open um i, I i've set myself to finish in rio de janeiro so um oh my goodness i think i've got about another year and a half maybe two years on the road i know <laughs> i try not to think about no it. i'm thinking you're so lucky it's 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 yeah it's a great adventure well, that was Tom Cable Davis, a.k.a. the Hungry Cyclist, who is um, heading down south of the border. Um, you ever been on a long, epic ride like that, Dave? Uh, I remember once I did one between friends in Europe, and I was out in the most god-awful thunderstorm that was going. A couple of people got killed, and I just happened to turn up at a hotel to get something to eat when the heavens opened, and it was everything was going horizontal. Um, and I got so tired, I was falling asleep on the bike. Uh, I was going between Luxembourg and Stuttgart. Well, that's not a great advertisement for cycling, cycle tourism. Anyway, this one goes out for Tom wherever you are, uh, somewhere south of the border.
Rats haven't only since I've come to Tulsa County And I really don't know what I'm gonna do Guess I moved it down along the southern border Cause I feel I've got to get away from you I may not be a wise man, but I know the life I'm living And you got your help from lots of other men I don't know just where I'll go But I guess I'll ride down to Mexico Down to Mexico And I should say that it's worth checking out Tom's uh, website, www www.thehungrycyclist.com It's got some terrific um, stories and some amazing photos of uh, the 7,000 miles that he's travelled already and um, he looks like he's got about another year and a half ahead of him. So Dave Holiday from the CTC, the Cyclist Touring Club Campaigns Department, what else is on your agenda at the moment besides bikes on trains? Well, I, I work with the co- colleagues, obviously. Um, we've got um, Natural Environment and Rural Communities Bill, which is doing some wonderful things for access. Um, we have uh, mountain bike races that uh, occasionally have to stop and walk for 50 yards because they're going on a particular type of right-of-way they can't use. So that there are moves to get that sorted out. Um, there's the Road Safety Bill, which is going through. And there's something which everybody can uh, react to, which has just come out for consultation, and that's the revision of the Highway Code. What's all that about? Um, well, when you read the Highway Code, it tells you what you're expected to do as a road user. There are some things you have to do, you must do, which are legal requirements. And there are other things that it says you should do. Uh, and one thing that's obviously got cyclist hackles up is the, the new Highway Code proposals have wording saying that you should use a cycle path if there is one. Um, quite a lot of cycle paths that are provided are, are not particularly appropriate for the type of cycling that the people are doing. Um, if you're cycling as transport you're bowling along at uh, 15 20 mile an hour and to have uh, junctions and tight turns and mixing it with pedestrians is not exactly the clever thing you are a vehicle your place is on the carriageway Um, and also when you're riding on quite a lot of these cycle paths they have junctions with the carriageway and crashes happen at junctions so the more junctions you have the more risk you have of crashes so the safe place so you're trying to get the should mm. taken out of it and in, it just in, to be a, a yeah. facility that people can use if they want to but there's no there's no burden or obligation or legal liability well whenever risk when, either when, way. whenever the highway code says should uh, and you do it and you end up in a pickle uh, they point to you and say well contributory negligence mm-hmm. so we're fighting that one well, if, you, if it's not the case that you should ride in cycle paths, one thing you certainly should be doing if you can, if you're living in South London, is go down to Rotherhithe Bike Magic Day, which is this Saturday, the 4th of March, um, outside the big decathlon in Surrey Keys. And um, it's from, I think, all day, pretty much, um, uh, 11 till 5-ish. There's um, Rich Johnson is doing a series of stunt bike riding demonstrations and there's a whole bunch of easy rides that are organized by um the fabulous 
Southwark cyclists. Um, and um, there's Dr. Bike, um, various other things, BMX riding going on, um, tryouts, advice, people help, who help you get back on your bicycle um, if you've not been riding over the winter. And um, that'll be there. And hopefully I'll make it down there. And if you see me wandering around with a microphone, come and say hello. Um, until then, next up is the clear spot. Dave, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. And I hope to have you back again. Um, and I hope all the campaigns go very well. Tengo miedo al avión. También tengo miedo al barco. Por eso quiero saber lo que debo hacer para cruzar el charco. Por eso quiero saber lo que debo hacer para cruzar el charco. Yo sabría esperar, porque el tiempo no me importa Si construyeran un puente desde Valencia hasta Mallorca Si construyeran un puente desde Valencia hasta Mallorca Será maravilloso de tomar el barco o el avión solo caminando en bicicleta o autostop será maravilloso viajar hasta Mallorca sin necesidad de tomar el barco o el avión solo caminando en bicicleta o autostop Tengo miedo al avión, también tengo miedo al barco, por eso quiero saber lo que debo hacer para cruzar el charco, por eso quiero saber lo que debo hacer para cruzar el charco. Yo sabría esperar, porque el tiempo no me importa, si construyeran un puente desde Valencia hasta Mallorca, si construyeran un puente desde Valencia hasta Mallorca. Será maravilloso viajar hasta Mallorca Sin necesidad de tomar el barco o el avión Solo caminando en bicicleta o autoestop Será